Check one, two. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Pete. I'm the lead pastor of uh, our church. Um, if you know a little bit about the 20th century history, you'll know one of the big stains and terrible marks of the 20th century is the slaughter of six million Jews during World War II by the Nazi regime. One of the beautiful stories that come out of it is about a man known as Oskar Schindler. You might have seen the uh, Steven Spielberg movie a couple of decades ago. Schindler was a German businessman and he had Jews working for him and he saw that that was a way for him to preserve the life of those he knew were about to be slaughtered. So he risked his life, he spent his money to keep them in his factory. They were working, building stuff that really never made it out of the factory. Um, But as long as they were in his factory, they were safe. No one was hit at his factory, no one was murdered at his factory, no one had been sent to death camps like the other Jews had all around Germany. But then it was the end of the war, 1944, and Nazis uh, began this thing called the Final Solution, which was their way of, they were losing the war, they were going to kill off every remaining Jew they could. And it began to threaten even Schindler's operation and his factory. Now what happened was, by mistake, 300 of the women of his factory were accidentally put on a cattle car and shipped off to Auschwitz, which is the famous death camp. That could only mean one thing, certain death. One of the survivors remembers when they arrived at Auschwitz, she knew that something had gone wrong because they were supposed to go to Schindler's other factory, but they ended up in Auschwitz. And as the guards took them out of the cattle cars, they got their hair cut real short and they got put into the shower. And if you know anything about the shower in death camps like Auschwitz, the shower was a way that uh, they used to gas uh, with poison gas, the Jews. So when Jew- Jews got sent to the shower, they didn't know if it was a real shower or it could have been the poison gas. So you imagine how terrified these women were. They got off the cattle cart, they were shipped to the shower. One of the survivors um, wrote this. She said, one night they took us to the gas chamber. We didn't know if it was going to be water or gas and we were waiting the whole night. Imagine how terrified they would have found the whole experience. Then a little while later, one morning, the prisoners hear a voice. And the voice was one they knew very well. It was the voice of Oscar Schindler. And he was shouting and screaming at the guards. And his words were, and they'll never forget, his words were, what are you doing with these people, he said. These are my people. Oskar Schindler had come all the way to Auschwitz to rescue them. He had bribed countless Nazis so he could retrieve the 300 women on his list and bring them back. And so these women, these 300, were shipped out of Auschwitz. They were the only 300 to be shipped out of, the only people to be shipped out of Auschwitz before the end of the war. One of the survivors, a man called Abraham Zuckerman, later recalled, Can you imagine what power it took for Schindler to pull out from Auschwitz 300 people? At Auschwitz, he said, it was only one way you got out, and it was the chimney. Right? What happened is they used to gas the Jews, and then they used to burn their bodies en masse, and then the ashes would go out the chimney. He said, no one ever got out of Auschwitz, but Schindler got out 300. Another survivor, Stella, 
wrote, What I'll say is nothing poetic, but I will repeat it till the end of my days, that the first time I was given life by my parents, and the second time by Oscar Schindler. In 1944, there were around 700 women transported there, she goes on, 300 of whom were on his list, and he fought for us like a lion because he didn't want to let, because they didn't want to let us out of Auschwitz. Schindler was offered better and healthier workers from new transports, unlike us who had spent several years in the camp, but he got us out. He saved us. As the 300 women arrived finally, at Schindler's factory, they were all weak and hungry and frostbitten and tired and looking less than human. They all remember Oscar Schindler meeting them standing at the doorway of the courtyard and they will never forget his raspy voice when he said this to them. And he was surrounded, by the way, by Nazi SS guards. He said this to them. He said, now you are finally with me. You are safe now. Don't be afraid of anything you don't have to worry anymore. See, in World War II, if you were a Jew, you needed to be on Schindler's list. Because if you belonged to Oscar Schindler, you were safe. In the end, he saved about 1,200 Jews. I mention that because it's a little bit like the Bible's picture of humanity. If you belong to God, you're safe. You're marked out as His. He will take you to glory. Even in the midst of your pain and suffering, even in the midst of the world's sin and decay, you are safe. And so the most important questions for believers in this life are questions such as, well, do I belong to God? I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Do you belong to God? Are you on the inside? And if so, how can you be sure? They're very important questions if you understand where the world is going. Even the first passage that um, Perry read for us, there is a judgment coming. But if you belong to God, then you are safe. Now, the book of 1 John is actually a letter written to answer such a question because if you remember, we started 1 John a few weeks ago, but John was writing to a small, young Christian community who are under threat by false teachers. And these false teachers were claiming, you know, higher knowledge, deeper spirituality. They said, you couldn't be sure you belonged to God unless you joined them and knew what they knew. You can imagine how that really shook the confidence of this church. Well, John, who was a disciple of Jesus, writes to reassure God's people that there are true marks of belonging. And they have nothing to do with what the false teachers were saying. Alright, the question of who is in, who is out, how do you know? This is what 1 John is trying to deal with. And just like the Jews who were mistakenly shipped to Auschwitz, everything hangs on the answer to that question. Who is in, who is out, how do we know? Friends, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you'll know the Christian life is compared not to a sprint but to a marathon. Well, let me ask you in the marathon of the Christian life, do you know the answer to that question, who you belong to? I'll tell you, even the strongest Christians, even those of us who have been Christians for decades, every so often we need to be reminded of that. So this is what 1 John is going to do for us this morning. Let's pray and get into the passage. Lord Jesus, by your word and spirit, please assure us. Assure us of what we need to hear. 
so that those who are on the inside might leave this place reveling in belonging to you, that those who are still on the outside might want nothing more than to come and join your body and belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You see on your outlines uh, three points I've got. So we're up to point one, those who are in. Uh, Just a bit of a recap. Last week we looked at how you can claim you belong to God, but talk is cheap. Um, And you must pass three tests. And I mentioned how the three tests are like three-legged stool. You've got to have all of them, not two, not one, all three. Three tests were the obedience tests. Do you obey God's commands? The love tests. Do you love each other? And then the truth tests. Do you believe the right things? And we looked at two of them last week, obedience and love. You remember? The truth test will come in the last section of this week's passage. Now, it might be that you were here last week and after the whole testing, the you know, talk is cheap thing, maybe you were leaving and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you felt a little bit shaken in your faith. Am I, going to part, do I, am I one of those talk is cheap guys? Am I a fraud? Well, you know what? This section in 1 John opens with words to show you that John's intention is not at all to shake your confidence. So if you were a little shaken last week, I'm really glad you're here this week because you need to hear this week's passage. Because John, in fact, opens with words that show you how strongly he believes that his readers do actually belong to God. And the majority of you here, those who I do know personally, if you felt a little bit shaken, right, it may be that God wants to start this, this morning by just telling you, hey, you do belong to me. So you see what John is doing? He, he almost he breaks down into poetry, essentially, And he's writing to reassure them. So let's have a look at verses 12 to 14 again. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Uh, you get a pattern there, don't you? It's pretty clear. There's two sets of addresses and each set addresses the same three groups of people. Yeah? He repeats it. Now, most likely these groups of people, children, fathers, young men, are referring to different groups within the church, but it's not to be taken literally. He's not just speaking to children. He's not just speaking to fathers. Right? He's not just speaking to young men. Could be that the children uh, mean baby Christians, the fathers mean old Christians, the young men mean Christians in their prime, in their youthful prime. But more likely, I think, and a lot of our, most of the commentators think, that the children actually refers to everyone rather than baby Christians. And the reason why is because later on he'll use, even verse 18, he often uses dear children to refer to everyone. So it could be that he's saying everyone and then he addresses the fathers, the older mature among them and then he'll address the young men or young women which is the younger among them or especially Christians in their prime. And you'll see from your outline that's basically how I split it up. Everyone, the mature and then the youthful. So let's see what he says to each group of them. So to everyone, to the dear children, he says, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, verse 12. And then he says again in verse 14, you know the father. Uh, Look, Put it in other words, he's saying to everyone, hey, remember the basics, yeah? Remember the basics. Remember your ABCs. Because this is how you know you belong to God. It's the basic good news. 
the stuff that you became a Christian through, the, the, the stuff that you got in with, it's still the key stuff, right? You're forgiven. You really have a saving knowledge of God, a relationship with the Father. You really do. I just want to remind you that Christianity is not like some computer games where it's all about leveling up. It's not like that. Earn some XP, right? Get some new levels, new skills. It doesn't work like that. It's not leveling up. The false teachers were saying, you Christians or you guys, you need to level up because you need this deeper, higher secret knowledge. No, 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 no. The Christian life is not about leveling up. It's not about new knowledge. It's about going deeper into the absolute basics. That is really essentially what the Christian life is. How you start is how you go on and how you finish. So John Newton, the famous ex-slave trader, become a minister, said at the end of his life, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. The biggest, most famous theologian in the 20th century is a guy called Karl Barth. One of the times he was asked by a journalist, Professor Barth, what is the one thing that you, you know, think is most meaningful to you? Of all the theologies that you've read and written, you know what he said? He said, it's this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Simple Sunday school song we teach our youngest children. Children of God find the basics sweet beyond measure. You're forgiven. Through Jesus and his death and resurrection, you have a relationship with God, a security in him. Do you find that sweet beyond measure? Because if you are a Christian, you will. If you're not yet a Christian, that is sweet beyond measure. So we hope you come to understand that and get to know Jesus better. Well, what about the next group of people, the mature, the fathers, the mothers in the faith? Well, he says the same thing to them twice, Right? You know him who is from the beginning, 13 and 14. Now, from the beginning here, he's not talking about God's eternity, right? He's not saying you've known he, God, who, you know, lasted before time, he is from the beginning. I think from the beginning he's talking about their own beginning, their long history in knowing God, right? So, you have known him and you've known him from the beginning of your Christian journey until now. Because that is the benefit, isn't it, of being older? If you've been Christian for not years, but decades, you get life experience through the ups and downs. Mature, older Christians, well, your faith is not as susceptible to the high highs and the low lows, but there's a beauty and a steadiness about that. There's a deepness and a firmness about that. And John's words to the mature Christians is, remember your history. Your long journey, the marathon so far, remember that in your walk with the Lord. In the year 155 AD, the disciple John's own uh, disciple, or the guy who followed him, was a guy called Polycarp, who himself became a Christian leader. Well, he, in 155 AD, was tied to the stake to be burnt alive. He was given one last chance to deny Jesus. You know what he said? He said, and he was an old man, he said, 86 years have I served him and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my King and Saviour? And he gets burnt alive. You see what he's saying? 86 years in my journey, God has never let me down. 
He is doing what John is urging us to do. If you are an older Christian, remember he who you've known from the beginning. So have you been a Christian for a while? I don't mean five years. I don't mean 10 years. I don't even mean 20 years. I mean 20 plus years, 30 years. Not too many people here, but there's some of you in this category. How's your walk with Jesus now? I hope it hasn't faded away. I hope it's deepened. I mean, those who've been married for 30 years, not me, but people who've been married 30 years plus, you'll know that romance and love is much less heady, but more grounded. I love seeing old couples holding hands. Don't you love that? It's like one of the most beautiful pictures, isn't it? Right? It's not the ups and downs of romance in the first three years. The 30 years on, the love is deeper, but it's more steady. If you're an older Christian in your walk with Jesus, I hope this is the case. It's much less heady and emotional. You're on these high highs, low lows. No, no, no. It's deeper, more grounded, more mature. But you can honestly say, yes, it's been hard at times, but I love Jesus more today. I remember what it was like from the beginning till now. Is that you? Well, what about the youthful, the young men, the young women? I don't think it's just young in age. I think it's also young Christians as well. Those who haven't had the decades under their belt, I think that's probably the majority of people here. Well, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. All right, if the fathers and mothers, the mature, are steady and solid, the youthful are passionate and lively and strong, uh, you, you notice he's almost using like battle language, isn't he? Because the assumption is they're on the front lines of the battle. All right? you, he's saying to you, you soldiers, you're fighting in the front. We need you. You're young. You're youthful. You're energetic. So stay your course. Stay strong. Keep fighting. Be confident. Victory is secure. Now, I love how John addresses both the mature and the youthful because I think in some churches there's only emphasized on one, the youthful, or the mature. But you know what? They need each other. They actually can learn from each other. I strongly believe this is why Acts 11 and all the services at our church shouldn't be separated and segregated on age. Because you need each other. I'm part of the uh, Rice Movement. I'm uh, chairman of the board, whatever that means. Um, But one of the benefits of being part of the Rice Movement, I just went to this worship night last night, and it was incredible. You see 17, 18, 19-year-old young leaders, and there's so much passion and creativity. And they are serious about their Christian growth. Some of them got up yesterday impromptu and just urged everyone to keep shining as Jesus is like, to keep going out into the world, keep evangelizing high schools, keep evangelizing friends. And I was sitting there thinking, man, what a rebuke to me. Their passion. We need youthful passion and exuberance. So if you are in that category, use your youth and your youthfulness. Use your strength and your passion and channel that to serve your king. Jonathan Edwards, the famous American theologian and pastor, was 19 years old when he wrote his famous 70 resolutions. As far as we can tell, he stuck to them his whole life. Let me read to you resolution number one. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure. Resolution five. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. 
Resolution 6. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. And there's 70 of them. He was 19 years old. So the summary. This passage, as you can see, is dripping with assurance, isn't it? If you're on the inside, old or young, you belong to God and you can be confident of it. And because you've been called out of the world to belong to God, you need to be reminded of what that means in terms of your relationship with the world that you've been called out of. So we're up to point two, the next section. Right, the world outside. Verse 15, let's go. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Three things we need to sort out, don't we, from this bit. Firstly, what is the world? Because you might be thinking John is anti-creation. Not to love the world? Does that mean I'm not to enjoy the good things that God has made? No, 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 that's not what John means. When the Apostle John, here in his letters as well as in his Gospel, talks about the world, he doesn't mean creation itself, he means the creation in rebellion against God. It's important to distinguish this. Christians are not anti-materialists or anti-world like Buddhists. Right? No, no, no. The Bible tells us everything that God has created to be good. It, it, everything God created is good and to be enjoyed. So it's not that we reject good things, but we, what, what he's talking about is good things that have become God things. You know, you know the difference? Not creation, but the creation in rebellion against God. So the Bible says, much misunderstood. A lot of people think the Bible saying money is the root of all evil. It's not money is the root of all evil. If you read carefully, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah? To 1 Timothy. Money itself is a good gift. But it becomes a God when you're greedy for it. So the love and the pursuit of money and it's used for power and injustice and all the kind of things that money is used for badly. That's the root of all evil, right? It's not the world that God created, but the world in rebellion against God. It's the fallen creation. The world around us has set itself up ignoring God or rejecting God. That's what John means. And so actually in John 3.16, famous verse, for God so loved the world. Often you think, wow, God's love must be so big because the world is so big. Now John means God's love is so big, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Yeah? The world that's rejected God, God says, I still love you. That's what he means. So that's the world. Well, what's in the world? Well, according to this passage, we're not to love the world or anything in the world because it has three specific things. You see there? The lust of the eyes, the lust, sorry, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then thirdly, the pride of life. The first two are talking about lust. The word is really just desires, but it's bad desires, isn't it? And, and it's talking about flesh and eyes because these desires come from both inside the inside vent that we have, as well as outside stimuli, right? Stimulus, that which you see through your senses, or experience through your senses. So the inside vent is what the Bible calls the flesh. It's not our bodies so much so, but our fallen human nature, the flesh, the inside vent that we have to do evil. And then the outside stimulus, what we see with our eyes, our other senses, we are in the world, the world is against God, so the world is going to keep throwing at us 
all the things that are tempting us away from God. Now you see the, that dynamic in, um, in the first sin. In Genesis chapter 3, the woman at the garden, we read that she sees the forbidden fruit, stimulus, lust of the eyes, that it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, and then her flesh, so she took it and ate it. Right? Without the flesh, you won't be tempted by what you see. Yeah? Without the flesh, you can see stuff, it can throw it at you, but you haven't got the inward bent, you, you shouldn't ever sin. Without the stimuli, your flesh won't be activated. And the lust of the world work through both, don't they? Or thirdly, it's the pride of life it talks about. What is that? The pride of life. Well, things in our fallen world that are that the world itself, the world rejecting God, the world that doesn't want part of God, that it, it elevates, that it glories in. So I don't know if you've been watching the Australian special too, if you are the one the last two Sundays. It's been good. Who's watched that? Just me? Yeah, just three of us. Awesome. Well, it's a great show. World's most popular dating show. More people watch it than there are people in Australia or something like that. Um, if you ever watch this or other dating shows, or I don't know, Farmer Wants a Wife, um, another show that we enjoy, there, there are things that make for eligible contestants, yeah? Whether it's the male contestant or the female contestant. And it's usually things, and they do look, I mean, lots of people apply for the Australian special, and I watch the behind the scenes special, and they're looking for certain things. Someone either has got to be really good looking, got a really great personality, or a really good body, like fitness, or they've got have a really good career, really, you know, really rich. They're looking for particular types of people. Now, I take it that the, the things that they look for, that's, that's the kind of example of what the pride of life is. This is what the world is looking for. This is what the world sees as successful. Good looks, good personality, good bodies, you know, good at sport, good career, good money, hopefully everything or a combination of the above. Right? And these things are the pride of life that want to steal away our affections from God. Well, why not love the world? That's really the point of this bit, isn't it? Why not love the world? Well, there are two reasons he gives. And the first reason has to do with what we already looked at. Right? Remember, you belong to God if you're a Christian. If you belong to God, then you don't belong to the world because he called you out of the world. You don't belong in the world with its lusts of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life any more than the Jews who belong to Schindler belonged to in Auschwitz, yeah? You don't belong there. But the second reason he gives is verse 17. Second reason is, well, it's very short-sighted. It's very short-sighted. Look at verse 17. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. If I asked you all to tell me the name of your great-great-grandfather or grandmother, would you be able to do it? Not your great, but your great-great-grandfather or grandmother. What's their name? Would you be able to tell me, even if you knew their name, what they did with their life? Would you be able to tell me how successful they were? Chances are, with maybe one exception or two, you might have a really famous great-grandfather. I don't know, maybe it was Einstein. No, it doesn't look like it. Um, chances are you don't have any clue. I don't have a clue. But do you see what this means? Whatever you accumulate and achieve or take pride in, in this life, guess what? It won't even last four generations because you will definitely, or at least 99% of you, will be forgotten by your great-great-grandchildren. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? 
The alternative for Christians is a quote that's made famous by a missionary C.T. Studd. He said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see? It's all about perspective. It's all about not being short-sighted. This world is going. So let me ask you, you who say you belong to God, do you love the world? Are you enamoured with the things in the world? I mean, that could be a sermon in itself. But let me just apply it one way. There's one way, very easy to test this, if we love the world or not. Let me test it by asking you, what is your decision-making process for the major decisions in life? How do you go about making decisions? Because here it is, if it is true that we love God and not the world, logically speaking, your decision-making process should look at least some of the time, if not all of the time, pretty upside down when it's compared to the world's decision-making process. Am I right? It should, shouldn't it? I'm not talking about the end point of your decision, right? You might decide to buy a house in Hurstville like your non-Christian neighbour. I'm talking about the process. How did you go about making that decision? That process should look upside down to the world if we love God and not the world. So let me ask you, how did you decide what uni course to study? What job you were going to take? Where you're going to live? Whether to get married and when? What your future was going to look like? what you're saving your money to buy, what you're doing or will be doing in your retirement. How did you go about making those decisions or how are you going about it now? Is it any different to the world, really? I remember Philip Jensen said, year by year, over decades to his uni students, he said this, he said, the world, all the other uni students are going to try and get into the best uni course so they can get the best job so they can have the best career, so they can buy the best house, live the best, most comfortable life and have the best retirement. And then he said this, most Christian uni students do exactly the same thing with exactly the same process, except at the end, after they found the house, they will look for the closest church and ministry and fit everything else around that. I'm sorry, fit, fit church and ministry around their other decisions. Sport comes up on Sunday, well, too bad. Kids' tutoring comes up on Sunday, too bad. Church is going to inconvenience me, find another church. Everything is exactly the same except we tack church on the end. Philip Jensen challenged university students with this question. Shouldn't our decision-making process be utterly upside down compared with the world? Shouldn't you be asking first, where can I serve God best given what he's given me, how he's made me? Where can I serve him best? And where can I be in Christian community so that I can do that with others? That should be the first question. And then maybe it's where do I need to live in order to do that? And then it's the question, well, what job do I need to have to support my family and myself so I can live there? And then it's what skills do I need to develop in order to have that job? And then you think, what study, university or other do I need to do? Do you see how it's upside down? I'm not saying you don't end up living in Kingsgrove going to this church. But how did you make that decision? Do you see? Obviously, there's going to be adjustments. And I mean, you can't take that. It's not a one, one thing fits all. But I, you get his point, right? In your decision-making process for you, your family, your children, 
How are you going about it? Does it look any different to the world? That's a good way of testing whether we love the world or we love God. Well, the final section, we come to the third test, the truth test. Now, it seems rather unrelated to the previous section. I actually hope you can see it follows, right? I mean, the outline will show you. It's those who are in, then the world outside. Now we're talking about those who are on the outside. Uh, Because John is giving those people on the inside assurance so that he can prepare them for what he's about to say to, about those who have gone out, the outside. So that's the key to the section, right? These are people who used to be in, or at least appeared to be in, but they've gone out. So the key is verse 19, you see there. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us, because if they really belonged to us, they would have remained in us, yeah? Okay? Now, that's a really long section, so we won't read it again. I'm just going to quickly go through the when, who, what, why, and how. All right? When, who, what, why, and how. Firstly, when. Verse 18 begins with, it's the last hour. Remember, he's just said the world and all its pleasures are passing away. Right? The Christian, the person on the inside, understands the times. Well, here he's kind of reminding you it's really passing away. It's happening soon. Because the Bible's view is, with Jesus' coming, we are in the last chapter of human history. The end is that period between his first coming and his second coming. The end is close. Right? We live in the era of the end times. That's the when. How about the who? Well, verse 18 says the Antichrist is coming. In fact, many Antichrists have come. Some of us read that and we're thinking about those movies. Not so much nowadays. They used to be popular in the 80s and 90s. Right? Antichrist movies, horror films, you know, people with fiery eyes or horns on their heads and that kind of thing. Well, don't think that because he means false teachers. They're Antichrist, not because of what they look like, not even because of what they do that's really obvious, but usually because of their false beliefs. Remember, this is the truth test. So they're probably going to look pretty ordinary. They're going to be nice people. All right? They're not going to like suddenly sprout horns. That's the who, the what. What is it that these antichrists deny? Well, verse 22, they deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's why they're called antichrists. All right? Now, there was in... Uh, we have in church history an account of a false teacher. His name was Cerinthus. And we know that he was a contemporary of the writer John. All right? It's possible that John means him and the false teaching that surrounds him. We're not too sure, but it, it's possible. All right? Um, because what Cerinthus taught was that Jesus of Nazareth was not God the Son. He was not the Christ, at least not for his whole life. Jesus of Nazareth was just a, a normal person, all right? But at some point around his baptism, the Christ Spirit descended on Jesus, right? Sort of like taking him over like an alien, guided Jesus of Nazareth in his ministry, but then left Jesus before crucifixion. So you see, Jesus of Nazareth, he in and of himself is just a man, but this other Christ Spirit came and kind of took over his body, and then left. So, you, you see, if it's Serenthus, it makes a lot of sense because he's actually denying that Jesus of Nazareth is really the Christ or that the Christ has come in the flesh or all the kind of same things. Um, there's an anecdote, uh, a story about the Apostle John. Uh, he finds himself one morning in the bathhouse because they have public baths and Serenthus was in the bathhouse and people remember witnessing the Apostle John, the guy who wrote this, they're running out of the bathhouse and it's not because Serenthus looked bad naked, but because he was yelling, 
everyone get out of the bathhouse because the, is, the false teacher is in there and we don't know if God's going to strike him down and take everyone with him. Right? This is, I don't know if it's true or not, but they were definitely contemporary. So it could have been that. But essentially that's what they deny, that Jesus, the person Jesus, the man Jesus was also divine and was also the Christ. Why? Why would they teach what they teach? Well, I've kind of mentioned it sort of in the last couple of sermons on 1 John. The main reason why is because the Greek philosophy world, the world that they came from, thought that everything spiritual was good, but everything material is bad. And if you think that, right, then the divine, the Christ, the Son of God, can't possibly actually become a man because flesh and material bodies are bad and certainly couldn't be crucified. That was what was popular because of people like Plato, the philosopher, that there's this big divide between the spiritual and the material, right? So the motivation you see for this false teaching is what? It's the world. Not just any false teaching. This is false teaching in love with the world and the world's way of thinking. That's why I'm saying this does relate to the bit before it. See, verse 19, it says, they went out from us. Well, they went out from us, but where did they go? Obviously, if they went out from the Christian community, those on the inside, they've gone out back into the world. This is all about worldliness. The most dangerous false teaching in any age are the ones that are shaped by the world because they're the ones that people want to believe. The really weird stuff. Like if I said to you, I'm going to start a cult and it involves sacrificing chickens and drinking their blood, probably none of you would actually follow me because it's just stupid, right? Because we all know that if you eat chicken and you don't cook them, you're going to get salmonella. Um, do, do you see what I mean? Like, no, 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 it's the stuff that the world loves. That's the dangerous stuff. So denying that Jesus is a Christ is probably not how we would say modern heresies or false teachings that are the most dangerous. But the most dangerous, you can still use this criteria, the most dangerous are those that pander to the world. So when former pastor, famous American pastor Rob Bell goes on Oprah and Oprah loves him, you should have bells, like, not Rob Bell, you should have like danger bells ringing, right? If Oprah loves you and your theology, there's something seriously wrong. So what are some modern heresies that are shaped by the spirit of our age? Don't have time to go into them, let me just list a few. Denying that the Bible is God's infallible word. Because we want to deny that it has supreme authority over us. Or we want to say it's not enough. Bible's good, but you need other stuff. Other false teachings. Compromising on sexual ethics. The sex is between a man and a woman in lifelong monogamous commitment and marriage. Lots of that there. A lot of people claiming to be Christians saying it's okay to step outside of that. Another false teaching. Denying that God is angry against sin. Denying hell. And therefore, if you deny all those things, well, Jesus' death is other things, but it's not really dying to pay the penalty for our sins. Denying the atonement. By the way, all of those things, Rob Bell, okay? Other things. Denying that the supernatural happens, especially the bodily resurrection of Jesus in history. And of course, the prosperity gospel, probably one of the most horrible false teachings that's ripping through churches in Africa and destroying people's faith, the health and wealth gospel. You believe in Jesus, he'll make you rich. False teaching. They all pander to the world. So last question then, how? 
How can those on the inside stay confident and assured and not sway? Because this false teaching, by the way, is out there and is in here sometimes. Right? We've got to be careful. So how can we be confident? Well, we come back to what we looked at at the first. So did you see how the passage ends? The way it begins? He's saying to those on the inside, go back to basics and stay there. Go back to what you've already known and experienced from the beginning. Look at verse 24. 24. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. In those verses, he talks about anointing, and I have time to go into it, but anointing is God's way to mark out those who are his own, to set them apart. In the ancient world, he did it with oil. Here, obviously, he's not talking literally. But he is saying, if you're a Christian, you belong to God. God has marked you out. He's marked you out how? By his Holy Spirit that he's put inside of you, working through his word, the truth. John is saying, you don't need special teaching. You don't need to level up. You don't need secret knowledge. You don't need... No, you have God's Spirit and He assures you of the word which you've had from the very beginning. Remain in that. That's how you stay. I've been thinking a little bit about the difference between becoming a professional tennis player and a professional musician. I'm going to become neither. But you know what I think about? I, I, I learned tennis when I was quite young. Um, you... In, in tennis, you learn all the basic strokes probably within a few months, really early, right? Forehand, backhand, volleys, serves, overheads, you know, right? Drop shots, like all of it. You, you, get, you get the whole arsenal. And if you look at pro tennis players, they actually just do the basics but do it really, really well. So what I love about Roger Federer, right? He is just beautiful to watch because he hits a forehand like you were taught to hit a forehand, but he just hits it so good. That's a pro tennis player. I take it for pro musicians, it's slightly different. If you're going to become a pro musician, yeah, I mean, you've got to learn some of the basics, the scales and so on, but even learning all your scales takes years, right? You've got to learn piano. And then there are all these special skills. I'm sure, like, for someone like Sherilyn, you don't just go from playing your C major scale to playing Rachmaninoff, right? You, like, there's so many things that you need to upskill all throughout. You've got to keep learning new skills, develop new muscles, the, I don't even understand it. But anyway, I'm sure that's the case, not just with piano, but for other musicians. But you see the difference, right? For the pro tennis player, it's doing the basics and going deeper into the basics and getting really good at it. For the pro musician, you just got to keep... The Christian life is more like tennis. You want to experience daily assurance? Do you want victory over the world, the flesh, the devil, false teaching, lies? Go deeper into the basics. Let's pray. Father, help us because your anointing is on those who belong to you. By your spirit and your word, assure us of what those beautiful basics are so that we can go deeper into them for your glory. Amen.